You know what's big these days? Do I? Uh, I mean, I have a number of ideas. Yeah. None of them probably qualify. What's big? Like, what's what what's in fashion right now? You know, it's it's like a what's well, in vogue? In vogue, uh, the nineties. Oh yeah. Have you heard? Yeah, I thought you yeah. were gonna say clogs. Clogs never left, man. Everybody caught up to California lifestyle stuff. I guess it's like, oh, you can be casual. Yeah, you can be fun casual. Whenever I think about clogs, I always just picture the wooden, the OG clog. Where are those? Yeah, they're still out there. I feel like when I was in certain corners of Europe, I would see wooden clogs sold. Yeah. Unironically, but for tourists, where like the name of the city would be painted on the toe of the thing, you know. Who's determining whether or not that's an ironic sale? It's perhaps cynical, like, you know, the people, (laughs) the good people of Brussels are like, I don't think that this is going to cause a firestorm of excitement in the United States where people are wearing these wooden clogs. Although, Stephen, would it surprise you if people started wearing actual, Uh, legit, old school wooden clogs, you know, the new agey, boho chic, West Coast hippie type Mm-hmm. With money, just like going to Trader Joe's, wearing those wooden clogs. Yeah. Very expensive. Totally. Value add is, I don't know what. Well, do you know the clog. value add? You can hear them coming from a you mile can away. hear them coming. It's like a livestock bell. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or a cat bell. Yeah. So that the mice are warned. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a predatory hippie, people want to know you're coming to, I don't know, yep. throw patchouli on them or something. Or sell them a windmill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. The 90s are back. The 90s are back and they are in your face. Remember that show in the 90s about a plucky teen with an interesting hobby? She caught it by day, seemed like a regular teenager, but by night. Yeah. She would hunt vampires. Hunt vampires. Yeah. Buffina. The Vampire Slayeress. Most people would just say Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What I remember about that show is practically nothing except yeah. that there was a lot of sexy dudes and mm-hmm. one guy was a vampire and somebody got his own show. But that it was based on a movie, Stephen. What? With Christy Swanson uh-huh, huh. called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. Came out a few years before. For many people who were like part of the generation coming of age in the mid to late 90s, that was perhaps one of the first introductions to the whole vampire myth, uh, especially the sort of sexy element to it, right? Like, it's not like there's a lot of sultry elements to the Frankenstein story or anything like that, right? But with (laughs) vampires, it's like, hey, it's like, you know, we kill each other, but we have sex and... Yeah, we're very sensual. Vampires are a sensual monster. There was never a side piece of Frankenstein, for example. (laughs) Bride of. The dude got married. That was as good as he was going to get. <laughs> but it is an enduring myth. It's an enduring story. The Twilight thing happened, you know, whatever, 10, 15 years ago. You go back into the Anne Rice days in the 90s, also the interview with a vampire. There is always some vampire story just ready to emerge into the collective consciousness of pop culture, right? Yeah, it really seems like it. It seems like it's always about to be blood sucking season (laughs) which is which is the fall (laughs) (laughs) that's true yeah there's there's some nice autumnal colors associated with the vampire but what i think you're getting at is 
We're always eager for some hot vamp news. Usually it comes out of Hollywood, but every now and again, it comes out of a little auction house where somebody's selling a vampire killing kit, Stephen. Oh. Yeah. You knew where we were going with this. You were setting this up. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) He's coy. You got the sparkle, Stephen. There was a story that came out a couple weeks ago about an antique vampire slaying kit that had sold at auction after rounds of international bidding and then produced a series of stories in various media. CNN, Fox Business, because it's somehow a business story. Yeah. New York Post, Bro Bible, uh, I think one of the Science Dailies, all of which were about this old school kit which was once owned by a British aristocrat, Stephen, from the late 19th century. Anyway, came up for auction. Part of the reveal was, yeah, they were asking a couple of thousand dollars, but it ended up selling for in the neighborhood of 16,000 US bucks to unknown party. This kit, Stephen, have you seen it? Oh, yeah. I'm looking at it right now, honestly. And it is, it's very quaint. It's very artisanal. A lot of handmade stuff. You can't mass produce that. It's not an IKEA vampire killing kit. No, they got uh, there. are two little guns, like kind of those weird little curly cue guns that are like a. Uh, I think they're called derringers. Yeah, like a little single shot pistol. Yep, yep. There's a there's a mallet. There's a lot of things made of wood. There are little uh, atomizers. There's something that can contain what I believe to be some elixir or powder that I'm sure is not pleasing to a vampire you got your crosses and then you got of course a book of sorts and it all sits neatly in a beautiful wooden box that Mm -hmm. eh, sort of looks like a jewelry box or maybe a kind of fancy supernatural toolbox i guess it is a fancy supernatural toolbox you know you got to get the right tool for the right job and what's weird is that the box was owned by this british aristocrat his name is lord william malcolm haley uh, he lived from 1872 to 1969, uh, and he was a former administrator of British India. So this is a guy with a ton of education, a very worldly man, who, on top of all that, heavily believed in the existence and reality of vampires. Well, this is what is wild about the story, because we don't know. Was he just a guy who, like us, looked at it and said, this would be kind of a cool thing to have on my mantle and show off when I bring dates over? Or... Was it a legitimate superstition that he actually wanted to use his toolbox to protect himself from the revenants of the night? We don't know, Stephen. We don't know. All those stories that I told you picked it up all did exactly the same thing, which is they ran with the press release from Hanson's, the auction house, that sold the box. Yep. So everything was just restating what they were saying, which is fine especially because we're going to do it now to figure out whether this guy believed it or not. (laughs) Charles Hansen, the owner of the auction house, says William Malcolm Haley was recognized for his intellect. He was educated at Oxford. He was governor of the Punjab in the early 20s and so on. And yet, amid his illustrious career, he was drawn to this vampire slaying kit. That's understandable. These objects are both curious and intriguing. Hmm. So we don't know if he believed it. But you're on to something when you say, here's a person who had fairly significant political powers, who obviously commanded a lot of respect and influence, and who may very well have thought, when I go to bed at night, I am so glad that I have my 
little mallet with a crucifix on it so that if yeah. somebody comes through the window, which I have to invite them in anyway. So just like don't invite them in. Mm-hmm. But if I do get tricked into inviting them in, I can always pound them in the heart with my handy vampire killing kit. Better have it, not need it. You know what I mean? That's what he's thinking. Better have it, not need it. <laughs> That's absolutely fair. <laughs> That's absolutely fair. You know, there's only one way to protect yourself against a bad guy with a vampire kit, you know? How's that? It's a good guy with a vampire good kit. Good <laughs> guy with a vampire kit. Yes, that's true. It just made me think about this idea that there's a lot of people in the American government currently who are like evangelical Christians who believe in a fully literal interpretation of the stories in the Bible, mm-hmm. right? But those are also the people who make laws that affect regular, normal people who aren't doing all this mythical, magical stuff. But they get to believe in that openly and then also make these real world decisions about these very important realities of the day. Like how different is that really than the governor of the Punjab in the twenties also being a devout believer of vampires? I think if you compare, for example, certain premillennialist Christians who want to expedite the end of the world because Jesus Christ will come back and who think that by getting involved in stuff in the Middle East will bring that about quicker and who really believe that. The equivalence here would be good old Baron Haley tried to enact anti-vampire policy in India and elsewhere. It's like, this is a real threat, guys. We need to take this seriously. This kid is good for me, but how do we institute policy that's going to keep vampires at bay, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. And he believes he's really helping. I think so, yeah. It's notable that the former owner of this vampire slaying kit was a politician because politicians forever are constantly looking for some sort of monster or boogeyman or some other dangerous force that lurks in the darkness that is always something to be feared unless, you know, that person remains in power or gets elected because they are the people or the party that is able to save the electorate from, you know, these monsters. This is the power they have. This is the threat they recognize. Mm -hmm. The boogeyman idea really is one that is worth playing with, right? What are the things that threaten us and how legitimate are those threats? Yeah. And part of being a politician is about assessing which threats are real and which threats are not, right? And we elect these people to ostensibly protect us from danger and to enact policy that's in our collective best interest. That's what the whole game is about. At the same time, in order to be elected, there's also a great rhetorical trick to identify a boogeyman, an interloper, an enemy of some kind, make folks afraid of the existence of that boogeyman, and then campaign on a message that says you alone will either protect them from the boogeyman or will annihilate it altogether. All of this, Stephen, rather recalls a study that came out not too long ago, which has one of the best titles I've seen in a while. You want to hear it? Yeah. Wolf attacks predict far-right voting. That's right, Stephen. A group of researchers in Germany got real down and dirty in the data to look at how conservationist efforts to protect wolves, which then, of course, leads to attacks on livestock, then influence voting downstream from that. And what they found out by looking at this really granular voting data was where there are wolf attacks in Germany, there is a noticeable rightward shift in 
voting habits. Not just farmers and stuff, but people who had heard about this with the idea that wolves are connected to conservationist efforts, which tends to be more left-leaning, more green. Yep. We were accessing the study via a article that came out in Vice back in June. And the research was led by a guy named Ber- Bernhard Clem von Hohenberg, and it came out of the University of Amsterdam. And from the report, he and his co-author Ansem Hager said, to fight global warming and biodiversity loss, governments around the globe are implementing far-reaching conservation programs, including the restoration of habitats and large-scale reforestation. And the results of these policies and these actions are predictable, right? The, the, the wildlife comes back to their natural habitat. Wolves do very well, and they have in Germany, and they have in the United States, and consequently you get more wolves around. Yeah. Wolves are like, well, we like sheep. Yep. And so therefore we will eat sheep. Yep. If that policy brings animals back to an area that haven't been there for some time and those animals are naturally going to eat your livelihood, well, nobody's making any friends with that policy. Yeah. The right can point very directly to actual tangible economic impacts from having these wolves come back. And that's not something that's deniable. You have to, if you're on the left, address that in some way. You can't be like, well, just get over it. Like, yeah, wolves are going to eat some of your livestock, and that's just a hit you're going to take. Consider it a form of nature's taxation. Like, well, that's going to fall on deaf ears on people on the right. And so consequently, you see that pushing people more rightward. It's it's a weird case. I, I, I got to say, you know, just full disclosure, I'd say I'm, I'm on the pro-wolf side of the fence here. You're a wolfist. Yes, I'm a wolfist. But what we're dealing with, it's not just a case of lupophobia. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. The fear of the wolf. But it's not just that. It's not just a fear of wolves, but that also helps if people are using this as a political lever. But there is this scary thing that, as you said, has a real detriment to people trying to make a living in a certain way. And you think about the sort of almost poetic idea of a liberal elite inside a city who is eating beef or lamb or whatever, and they're all pro-wolf, but then the guy who is raising the livestock for them to eat their fancy dinner is anti-wolf because that wolf is actually making it harder for him to make a living. And it's real easy to, you know, in Los Angeles or whatever, to say, oh, yeah, that's part of the deal. You know, you should have a bigger picture mindset of this whole thing, farmer. But it points to that very disconnect between the right and the left. And in a weird way, this story encapsulates all of that. So the psychology professor at the University of Toronto named Yoel Inbar did this study where he, quote, placed test participants on a disgust scale, asking them to rate their agreement with stomach-wrenching statements and situations, such as, you discover that a friend of yours changes underwear only once a week. Subjects were then quizzed on their political ideology. He found that the more easily disgusted tended to be politically conservative, and also that the more easily startled people tended to have more right-wing views. So, okay, you have people who are going to have a visceral response to something that they're uncomfortable with, and that's going to tend to have an influence on their political stance. The story particularly references in 2000 when Al Gore was running against George W. Bush. Al Gore is a very environmental guy. I think we all know that. This also happened to be a year when there were a lot of droughts and floods, and that apparently influenced people's voting behavior. So as the authors of the study said, quote, 2.8 million people voted against Al Gore in 2000 because their states were too dry or too wet. 
What the heck? He's the guy who's trying to prevent the larger weather events from happening. Yeah, I think the association is this guy has something to do with it. So, yeah, it's not always rational. It's I'm going to punish the guy who's talking about the environment because the environment stuff doesn't seem to be going my way. They also talked about how things like the results of college games a few days before an election would have an impact and, like, a surprising outcome to the game would benefit the incumbent politician. Weird. That's weird. And especially, you know, poor Al, Al Gore, he can't catch a break, that guy. I mean, the fact that inclement weather is going to sway people to vote against him when he's the guy who's would have enacted the policies to help stem climate change, which is the reason for a lot of these like extreme weather events. Well, and I think the problem with climate change in a nutshell is that it's too big to be put in a nutshell. All of these stories in which you can point to local consequences, gas prices are going up, wolves are attacking livestock, there's a food shortage. All of that stuff looks for a villain. It looks for a boogeyman. Yeah. And even though the answer is we have to make sweeping changes to the entire system of human civilization, the way that we manufacture and ship, the way that we run governments, the way that we interact with the natural world, all of that stuff has to change and it all has to change now. Well, that may be a tall ask. It's easier to get mad at wolves. Yeah, that's not yet. Yeah. A wolf is a scary, growling, wild dog monster who's going to like eat your paycheck and your children but at the same time on the left there's boogeymen too the boogeyman on the left is the right yeah i think on the right the fear is also just of the left and all of the manifestations of the things that the left has done yeah right so you know the left brings wolves to your back door (laughs) and the right takes away your ability to have an abortion you know it's not the same thing, but I'm saying if yeah. you're looking at the way that these issues drive our relationship with the world and the things that are either good or bad, depending yeah. on how we look at them, you can always point to the other side as we become more and more polarized. When, again, the subtext of this is climate change is happening for a bunch of reasons, but it's going to absolutely affect everyone on Earth to a greater or lesser degree. Obviously, if you have money and resources, you'll be affected somewhat less or at least later than people who don't but it's out there and so the question that researchers journalists politicians a lot of people have who tend to be on the left is how do you get people to worry about this in the right way how do you Mm. get people to frame it properly so that you're not looking at the very local like gas prices which is important but isn't necessarily going to allow us to address the big picture stuff how do you do that well Stephen, the answer is another study. Mm. Well, I don't know if the answer is another study, but the answer is discussed in another study. You'd say the next thing you're going to say is in it is comes from another study. That's correct. There yeah. we go. Studies have been shown never to help anyone and only to hurt. <laughs> Studies are showing that, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're destroying <laughs> cocktail parties the world over. That would be a great study. The extent to which bringing up a study destroys a conversation mm-hmm. at a yeah. cocktail party. You get the wolf researchers who are very good at looking at those granular daddy to study what's going on at cocktail parties and to see, you notice that like dating patterns and sociability and 
just sort of a general good time quotient. All that stuff falls off when you start being like, hey, I just noticed this study that NPR covered. Ooh, that, that's a double whammy. And then you're like, hey, are there any beanie weenies left? Did you see if they brought those back? I, I'm going to go check. I'll be right back. But, but I'll, Steve, I'll be right. I'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, so this study that NPR covers is about climate change stories. Okay. It's a study from The Ohio State University. Mm. Always got to say the or yeah. the lawyers will come after you. Oof. From the NPR story, media coverage of climate change can influence Americans to adopt more accurate beliefs about the environment, which is great. Journalists want to hear that. It justifies why we do what we do. But the information doesn't stay with them for long. Here's how they structured the study. They had people read a bunch of accurate articles about climate change, and then they asked people, what do you think? And it turns out that Americans say, oh, that is a problem, and it does impact me, and we'll lean toward policies that support good climate change mitigation. But then they showed people other stories that doubted climate change, and Stephen, their beliefs just reversed. They're like, well, maybe it's not that big of a deal after all. Shiny objects. Shiny objects. And again, trying to deal with this massive concept where we just don't understand it. I mean, we can talk through the science, we can look at the outcomes, but climate change is something that is just hard to understand, except when you're looking at wildfires, when you're feeling these temperature changes. Mm -hmm. But understanding why it happens, the long-term effects, is ultimately mysterious to all but very few of us. Okay, so one of the researchers, Thomas Wood, here's what he says. Quote, what we found suggests that people need to hear the same accurate messages about climate change again and again. If they only hear it once, it recedes very quickly. And then, unfortunately for us, quote, the news media isn't designed to act that way. Meaning to continue to hammer away at this idea. That's just entirely false. The news media exactly reacts that way to any number of, like, fear-based stories over and over and over again. There's constantly a barrage of similar stories and stories with a similar theme. I I was really thrown off by that line because it's exactly what the news media does. And it's also like there's a climate change story in the news every day. So like what is not happening? I guess what I would say is not happening if you're looking at it in the kind of laboratory setting of this Mm -hmm. is for it to work, you would have to take away all of the skeptical articles, Uh, which is a whole different kind of information landscape. Yeah. And presents all kinds of other problems that are harder to reconcile. So we're left in a bit of a pickle, Stephen. It reminds us that people are naturally influenced by the things that are in front of them, right? If you are a person who raises livestock and a wolf is killing your livestock, and you know, the wolf is the problem at the moment, immediately, not the nuanced larger forces that were at play that caused folks to enact policy to protect new swaths of land. It's the wolf. That's the problem. That's what's going to prevent you from paying rent that month. Well, and that's what the researchers in the wolf study conclude. Because we see that the wolf attacks drive people to the right, the extrapolation is bad things that happen in the environmental movement are going to tend to push people farther away from taking action on climate change. There's an association there. And this is a microcosmic version of it. And so all of those little bad things that happen, gas prices going up, any of those things that have an immediate negative effect, the fear is that they're going to tend to drive people more to the right. Now, again, Mm. this is one study. It's about wolves in Germany. So I don't think we should assume from this that every time something bad happens with gas prices or whatever, that everyone's slowly shifting to the right. But I think it does suggest that 
people are going to deprioritize the big sweeping changes we need to make for climate change because there's going to be all of these little boogie men and boogie women and <laughs> boogie wolves that we're always having to face on a daily basis. Yeah, and it's not that the quote people on the right are all inherently bad. The fear is that there are policies that, at least in America, the Republican uh, side of things are enacting that are dangerous. You know, things that are, you know, restricting rights to people's bodies, things that are making it harder to stop climate change. It's it's those specific policies within this sort of like zombie cult that is the right, that is the problem. I think it's important, you know, to, to say that. It's not the people, it's, it's truly what's happening in the legislature that I think makes more votes going to the right more of an existential threat to where we're at as a society. Yeah, all of those politicians in Germany and the United States, all those Supreme Court justices in their black robes, they're all hiding somewhere in their offices, somewhere in their homes, their own version of a vampire killing kit. <laughs> it takes a slightly different form. The costs may be higher or lower, but everybody's got one. And, you know, it ain't just a hobby for them. It's something they believe, that there are monsters out there. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is there are monsters out there, but not necessarily the ones that they are aiming at. They're the really big ones. Yeah, I mean, that's why the robes are so big. You want to have options when you are concealing your vampire slaying kit. Yeah. Is that not the movie that we want to see in this Hollywood is Supreme Court versus Vampires? Oh, yeah. Kavanaugh, yeah. Vampire Slayer. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And in some ways, to some people, you sort of look like a boogeyman yourself. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. This has been Journos. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. I am Stephen Jackson. Keep your eyes focused on the dark and all of those beady <laughs> little eyes. We'll see you next time. All right. Take care. Journos is produced by Heather Eagle Ears Wilson.